0: Good morning, Good morning. <laughs> and uh, those of you who are here know it's raining really hard out today, and that's why, and I want to just, uh, you know... Thank you all for coming in this heavy rain. Most of our class, I think, is probably at home watching us. It's one of the downsides to webcasting live. They can sit at home and watch us in the snug warmth of the fireplace with a mug of hot chocolate, not coffee, right, and, um, and enjoy our class this morning. I know I shouldn't say that because you're running to go home and get in front of the fire right now, but we're glad that you're here this morning. And a couple of announcements. This is the uh, last week of our, of our current quarterly, so next week be sure and, and bring a, a new one with you that was starting the discipleship quarterly next week. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth about your kingdom of love and your methods and your principles and the way your kingdom operates. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to, to experience your love and to share it with others. Be with us today that our minds can draw uh, close to you, our hearts to each other, and that we can be more effective in sharing this message with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we do in lesson 13 in the quarterly, The Sanctuary, and the title of this week is Exhortations from the Sanctuary. And... The uh, first paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says the following. Throughout the book of Hebrews, passages about Christian faith alternate with passages about Christian living. In other words, theology has practical implications. The what of faith leads to the how of living that faith. In Hebrews, after the author has painted the magnificent theological picture of Christ as our sacrifice and high priest, he encourages and exhorts believers to live according to the implications of these truths. This exhortation is especially seen in Hebrews ten nineteen through 25 Thoughts about this paragraph? Well, particularly this idea of the what of faith leads to the how of living faith. Uh, I agree completely that uh, a healthy spiritual or theological perspective isn't pie-in-the-sky theory. It actually is applicable and translates into living methods or principles in how we live our lives. So... Can anyone, anybody feel like sharing how your beliefs about God actually a- a- apply or affect you in the real world? Any, anybody want to share? The, I get accused of talking so much, nobody gets a chance. So I'm given a chance to talk. <laughs> well, for me, one of the big ones for me was understanding the law of liberty understanding this principle that love doesn't exist without freedom, allowing other people the freedom to think what they want to think, particularly about me. Because when I was young, I really had a hard time about that. I wanted people to think good things about me, and it really bothered me if they thought things about me I didn't want them to think, and so I would spend a lot of effort trying to get them to think certain ways about me. And, and, And this law of liberty idea, wait a minute, you know, I'm responsible for being the healthiest person I can be, and I leave other people free to think what they want. It's okay. That was very freeing for me. It took me off a huge social pressure, uh, not having to worry about that. i no longer living in, in that fear. Freedom from the burden of the Sabbath. You notice I said burden of the Sabbath because I was raised where instead of the Sabbath being a day of freedom, which is what it's supposed to be, the day that is the the day where we come away and rest from all of our burdens, we have the greatest amount of freedom. And the way I was raised, the Sabbath was the greatest day of of uh, restriction. The day to, where your your hands and your whole heart were tied up in knots with, with fear about doing anything wrong, and if you did this or that, you might and you and all week long you could walk free, but on Sabbath you had to tiptoe around because you might have some sin marked against your name. Anybody ever feel that way besides me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was horrible. So to, to understand freedom freed me from that burden, uh, and, and it was, it, Sabbath became a, again a joy, like it was supposed to be. Yes?
1: Like you said something there, when I, where I was raised, and I've always said why my generation rebelled so hard against our parents was the term Jesus is coming again, and boy, is he mad. Yes. That's the way I was raised. And a retired minister one day said, I looked back at one of my old 1950s sermons, and Jim, you're right. He said, we were not trying to explain to you children that God is love. He's coming back, He's going to get you. And that was how I was writing. It was very hard for me many years after my Vietnam experience. In Vietnam, I didn't believe in God or anything. It took me a long time to come to the point and say, no, hold it just a minute, something ain't right here. God is love, but Why?
0: And so that idea of God being love has it had a positive impact on how you live your life today? Or conversely, did the fear view of God negatively impact the way you you, you lived your life? What about moving away from a a rules list orientation approach? To religion. Here's the rules. We've got to do all these things, do this, don't do that, to a principle-based living. Well, you know, these are the principles upon which life is built, and we want to live in harmony with them. Does that make a difference in your life? Yes.
2: Yeah. I'd just like to interject here that um, sometimes, I think maybe, of course my hair may show it, but I lived in a different era in the Adventist church. Either that or my parents were dramatically different and very much up to date my father was a pastor and uh, uh from time to time I hear these concerns about how raised and how it affected the um the outlook as far as God's love and so forth and so I would just like to raise my voice as one who uh was raised with love of God I had to go to church every Sabbath and so forth you know but uh, somehow I didn't feel that as a burden. You
0: know, and I appreciate you saying that. What, uh, no, I really appreciate you saying that.
2: Day and age.
0: Well, I don't. I don't know if it's a different day and age or not. I think that's the that shows the evidence of individuality within a system. In 2,000 years ago, 72 members of the Sanhedrin. Most of them were, were persecutory of Christ, but there was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who actually were on Christ's side of this equation. So even within a system where there might be uh, a a a kind of corporate sense of, of rules, there are individuals who rise above that system, and you evidently were exposed to some of those individuals, and I think that's great.
2: Yet I'm very pleased with the way that you present it, you know, and uh, hearing some some negative about your presentation, your um, philosophy, uh, I, I fail to see anything that is uh, really incorrect
0: you know in the back yeah
3: Uh, lawrence 99 says freedom from church concept of judgment and punishment learning to see god how he really is what kind of person he is which is delightfully better than i was taught as a child
0: yeah, so it made, that's made a positive impact in, in, in the day-to-day life. That's excellent. Let's jump into Sunday's lesson. It says, uh, the first paragraph, it says, Believers have spiritual access to the heavenly sanctuary, to the very throne of God. We can seek closeness to God because our entry was made possible by the blood of Christ and by his representation in our behalf as our high priest. The texts assure us that our soul has an anchor, Jesus Christ, who is in the very presence of God. The assurance for us is that Christ gained full access to God after he was inaugurated as the heavenly high priest. In this inauguration, Christ sat at the heavenly throne, an image that demonstrates his royal status. So
3: that means he didn't have access
0: to God before? I love that question. Yes, did Christ not have access to God before? It's crazy. So, he was God before. Yeah, so so we want to think about that. Uh, f- first thing that popped into my mind was, did you notice, w- w- according to the the text here, we, we have access, we can seek closeness to God because our entry our entry was made possible by the blood of Christ.
3: Well, see right there, that makes us think that God is a
1: mean wants to kill us we only have entry through
3: christ's blood otherwise he's inaccessible to us god is
0: yes and so we have to uh, kind of yes and so which which lens are we looking through this through for instance do you think they have a, a dna sampler there at the door to the heavenly the heavenly throne room has got a locked dna sampler we have to put a little sample of christ's blood in there and samples his dna oh the door's open well,
1: it makes it sound that way.
0: i mean are we talking actual blood No. Why do they use it? Why do we stick with this this dark speech, metaphorical way of describing it? Why don't we describe the reality of what gives us entry into God's presence? The blood is symbolic of something. So what's being presented that gives us entry into God's presence if it isn't actual red corpuscles with Jesus' DNA in it? What is the, the key that opens the way back into the Father's presence? It truth. truth.
3: Yeah. if we understand that God is not like we've been lied to, or like what we've misunderstood.
0: Okay, so one of the things that obstructs our unity with God, that she's identifying that the truth solves that problem. What does the the truth solves the problem of what obstruction? Our fear of God. Our misunderstanding, our distrust, our fear, the believing lies, the distortions in our head about God. So the truth solves that problem, removing those, and that opens the way. Is that the only obstruction or thing that, that prevents us from entering God's presence? Or is there something else that obstructs our ability to get into God's presence?
3: We're sick and we
0: need to be healed. Oh, there she said it. We are actually sick of heart, of mind. We're selfish. We're, we're fearful. We're afraid. Notice when Adam sinned, God didn't thunder and chase him away. Adam ran away because he was afraid, not because God was out to get him. And God went seeking Adam to reconcile Adam back to God. Notice the the dynamic going on here. And so what keeps us out of God's presence is our misunderstanding about God and our own nature of fear and self-centeredness. That were terrified in his presence. So, while it's true that, that what you said earlier, did he have access to God's presence before? Yes. But what was different in Christ gaining access to God's presence this time? And there was something different. Think about it. How does he go into God's presence prior to him coming to earth in Mary's womb? How does he go into God's presence after his ascension? As a human being. A, this is the big difference. Prior to Christ's ascension, a human being was incapable of going into God's presence because? Because what? Say that louder? Yeah. But, but okay, because of sin. Everybody's going to say that answer, but why? What does sin do that inhibits a human being from walking into God's presence? Separation. Does what? Separates. Russell, do you have something to do?
1: What? God's
0: or, uh... Well, let's let, let's put that off till we answer this question because this should answer that question. Okay, okay? what prevents a human being from going into God's presence in pure heart, in pure heart of the sinner? The character of the sinner can't tolerate the presence. It's not God doesn't want our presence. God does not, no, not. force. God is for us, who can be against us? You did not spare something but gave him up. How would not give us all things? God has for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. God is always drawing us back to His presence. He wants us there. He doesn't put an obstruction in the way, unlike what many of the imp- imposed legal models say God is angry, God is wrathful, God can't tolerate, he's too holy, he's offended, he, he can't stand it, he can't look at you, you've got to have some type of heavenly you know, blindfolds on the Father called the, the robe of Christ's righteousness that, so the Father can't actually see how wicked and awful you are because he would really get upset if he saw it. I mean, this is all distortion. The reason humanity couldn't go into God's presence is because humanity wasn't fit to live in God's presence. We would have died. And what Christ did to enter into God's presence is he picked up humanity, broken off in Adam, and carried it to completion, and he became, Jesus became what God intended Adam to become, a perfect human being. And thus he takes perfected humanity into God's presence, and through Christ we can partake. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We can partake of what Christ has done for us. And we can enter with a new heart and right spirit. We can actually be reborn. And what does reborn mean? It means an actual transformation in the mind, character, motives of the believer, not a legal pardon in record books.
3: Don't you think that's one reason that God wants so much for us to get into his nature so we can go home with him because he misses us too?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. So... Second paragraph, do you want me to answer the question about Enoch? How is it Enoch goes into heaven and Elijah goes into heaven prior to the linear existence on earth of Jesus on earth? And, and some might argue then, if that was the case, then what was the purpose of Christ's death? I mean, all Christians, regardless of whether they take the penal view or our view, all of them suggest that Christ's death was necessary for salvation. And you couldn't be saved without it, but here's Enoch that's in heaven without it. Either way, the the, the, the uh, penal view says, well, if Christ, w- they went on faith of the legal payment, and the legal payment was applied to their account in heaven, but if Christ didn't actually fulfill and make the payment, then Moses as well, then they would have had to come back to earth and die themselves. Yeah, have you ever heard this argument? This is what they say. No, it's, it's actually completely incorrect. My view, who created space? Who created time? Does God live controlled by space time or does he control space time? Okay, he is not a linear being. He doesn't live in a linear existence. It says that the past, present, and future to God are alike outspread. He lives outside time. Christ entered linear existence. At the Incarnation. He left his omnipresence and entered a linear existence at the Incarnation and achieved in his humanity what was necessary for the salvation of mankind. I call it the remedy, the perfected character of humanity, whatever you want to call it. Once it was achieved anywhere in time, a being who lives outside time has access to it and can apply it anywhere that being exists. So God living outside time applies to Enoch what Christ achieved in our linear existence. This is how I view it. And in fact, then Enoch's take gone into heaven, Elijah's going into heaven is, is evidence that Christ will succeed. If Christ failed at some time in the future, they couldn't have gone to heaven. It's confirming evidence. It's not they would have had to come back and die. It was evidence that Christ wasn't going to fail. Or else they couldn't have been healed. This is my view of it anyway. second paragraph says the good news for us is that our representative is in the presence of the father no mere mere earthly priest who himself is sinful serves on our behalf we have the better priest nothing separates the father from the son because christ is perfect and sinless there does not need to be a veil that shields god's holiness from jesus our high priest What's the implication of the veil in this paragraph? How do they imply its usage? Shield. As a shield to protect. This is one of the arguments of the penal view. The veil is there by God's mercy to protect us from God killing us.
1: So, in so other words, to the earthly sanctuary that Moses The veil was there to protect the high priest as he went in to minister before the veil.
0: This is what they're suggesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, now there is an element of truth in the veiling of God's glory. There's an element of truth here. God, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, veiled his glory on earth. This is why immediately they recognized they were naked and they were cold. Because the light that you saw a glimmer of in Moses' face coming off the mountain, that they and his holy beings coming from God's life-giving glory that was surrounded them was gone. God stepped back. To, to veil them for the purpose our God is a consuming fire it says in Hebrews twelve twenty nine that if Christ would have come with the full glory that he had with the Father in heaven instead of veiling his glory in humanity he would have destroyed those he came to save so there's an aspect where Christ did veil his life-giving glory and God did that for our salvation um, so I don't dispute that idea I dispute necessarily though the application to the veil in the sanctuary Um. Perhaps though the veil maybe had a dual meaning. Maybe you could see it at the, maybe you could see the veil as the place where the battle line is. I like kind of like this idea. Angels were on the veil and you have the 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 battle line between Christ and Satan fought at the veil metaphorically represented there. I mean that that could work for me, okay? But what is it that that, that the reason I have a problem with it actually representing God's grace in protecting us? When Christ died, did God's grace and mercy get destroyed? Did it torn down? No, of course it didn't get torn down. Did the veil get torn down? Yes, yes. and so what it separates us from God are the two things we've talked about already. The lies told by the evil one, who was a the light bearer, Lucifer, an angel in the most holy place of God's presence, angels on the veil separating us from the glory of God, and our own carnal natures. And when Christ died, he destroyed the lies and he destroyed the human nature, the infection that he took upon himself, thus opening a new and living way back into God's presence.
1: Now the original veil separated the people from the ark.
0: Uh, Separated not the people. The people couldn't go into the holy place. Only the priests could go in the holy place.
1: The the priests were people from the humanity from the ark, shall we say. The ark was hidden by Hezekiah, if I recall correctly. And in effect, what they had in the Jerusalem Temple was a rock. So, what are you in effect doing? Well, you're basically unveiling a fraud because there is no ark there. It's a fraud. It's a rock. There was no ark in the Jerusalem Temple. I was actually looking at uh,
0: it in, 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 sl- in the time of Christ because of Christ. because at Solomon there was.
1: In Solomon yeah, it was the okay. real ark, but yeah, when, okay. in the okay. fall of Jerusalem, yeah. when the ark was hidden, yeah. and presumably still hidden today, when that's under dispute, but the ark that was there in Christ's time was not the ark of the original covenant. It was a rock.
0: Okay. Yes.
3: I was saying it in different ways, and. Uh, Corinthians, whenever it talks about, now we see through a glass darkly, and then we shall see face to face, that, that separation, we can't understand God's character fully without Christ. But when Christ came in at the time of his death, the, that, the, His demonstration of living the sinless life and showing what God's character is truly like, at the time then of his death, it was sealed that now you see what God is truly like. So then we can see clearly. So the ripping of the veil then would be, now you see my full character.
0: I agree completely. And what is it then, where did the distortions about God's character originate? With whom? With satan. with satan who is an angelic being that originated uh his occupation in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary tells distortions and lies about god and so in the corinthians text there's a text that says um even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing because the god of this age has basically veiled their minds, so they can't see the light of the glory of Christ, which is glory of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So basically, their minds are veiled by Satan's lies, so they can't see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It's a metaphor to exactly what you're saying. And thus, when Christ died, he opens a new and living way. We can see the truth about God. The lies are destroyed. Yes? I look at it slightly different
1: than veil. I look at, if you mentioned a military type of thing, a war there. I look at it, I had to learn God is love. Also, God is truth. And there's an old saying, we can't handle the truth.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. If we
1: take that away, we're dead, because we can't handle yeah. perfection. With God's death and resurve- resurrection, we now have somebody that went through everything we went through, that has, it, and I try to explain this to young people, half half human, half perfect, that he can no. turn, and one side of him can talk to the Father, and one side of him can talk to us. And there's how we have that communication with God. So how were Enoch, Elijah, and
0: Moses... As I said earlier, they partook of what Christ achieved for them. So, third paragraph says, What does intercession comprehend? It is the golden chain which binds finite man to the throne of infinite God. The human agent whom Christ has died to save importunes... Importunes is an old word that means begs. Begging begs. Pleads, begs, importunes, begs the throne of God, and his petition is, or his plea, his petition is taken up by Jesus, who has purchased him with his own blood. The great high priest places his righteousness on the side of the sincere suppliant, and the prayer of Christ blends with that of the human petitioner. They had to look long and hard to find something this dark speech to put in here. <laughs> Okay? That, that, that would on the surface, for those whose minds are inculcated into the imperial Roman law construct in this penal system, make it sound like it supports them. It does not. This does not support penal substitution in what, in any fashion whatsoever. Um, let, let's look at this and let's break this down. When you hear about intercession, and, and as this, this, I think, quote is trying to be utilized to support, Tell me the traditional way we typically hear of Christ's intercessory role in heaven for us. How is it typically represented?
1: To
2: change God.
0: To change God, he says. Please God, don't hurt him. Please God, don't hurt him. You know, he, we pray, Christ hears our prayers, he turns to his Father and says, Father, I died for them. Uh, uh, remember, my, my blood, Father, my blood, be merciful. And he represents to the Father either, depending on your version, his blood, his merits, his sacrifice, his payment—some uh, pleading he's talking to his father about—which then makes our prayers, because of Christ's pleading in our behalf, acceptable to the Father. And the Father, who wouldn't otherwise hear our request, but now because of the pleas of his Son, who can't, the Father, what Father can't, you know, you know, listen to us, be influenced by his Son, you say? And so he takes the pleas of his Son and says, "Okay, for your sake, I'll go ahead and do that." But what I otherwise wouldn't have done— isn't this how it's typically presented? And doesn't that give you great confidence in God? No, it's horrible. Um, it's, just, it's just terrible. When we come to understand God's laws, we've talked about it in here is the design template for life and the battle between Christ and Satan is actually raging in our minds over who you will trust. Then what does God do? what is Christ doing in heaven? How do you describe intercession? Well, here's another quote from that same author. Now get this. This is, this is out of um, Upward Look, page 20. God's people rescued from the fire by Jesus Christ, have a sense of their sin. So we understand our inadequacy. We we know we're sick. We feel humbled and ashamed. God sees and recognizes their repentance and notes their sorrow for sin, which they cannot remove or cancel themselves. But as they pray, their prayers are heard, and this is the reason that Satan stands to resist Christ. Because he hears their prayers and makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, this next sentence is brilliant. Notice what's happening. We're praying. Christ hears. Christ is interceding for us. Here's the very next sentence. According to the saint, he's making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's doing God's will in doing this. He regenerates the sinner. He regen. What's he doing? He regenerates the sinner. And pardon is written off against his name. This stirs Satan up to resistance. He steps in between the repenting, believing soul and Christ. He seeks to cast his hellish shadow before that soul to dampen faith and to make of none effect the words of God. If Satan stands between the soul and Jesus, then the love and acceptance and pardon of Christ are eclipsed. Eclipsed from where? From heaven, God can't. God is less pardoning, less gracious, less loving. Where is the, the the grace and the and the love and the acceptance and pardon of Christ eclipsed from? From the devil. Our hearts and minds, it's eclipsed from. We doubt. We lose sight of it. We don't see the goodness of God. If Satan stands between us, and he stands between us with his distorted views about God that are often taught from the pulpit. Anyway, if Satan stands between the soul and Jesus Christ, and the love and acceptance and pardon of Christ are eclipsed, man will be, co- and then and notice what happens. When, when he gets his view, in our way, and we take in Satan's distorted view of God that we've read in here for the last multiple weeks about every sin must mean its punishment, urge Satan, this kind of idea that God is not a, a kind benefactor of his of his earthborn children, that he, instead he's, he's needing to punish and we have this typical view of Jesus pleading, we get that view in our mind, and, and so the truth about God's love is eclipsed, notice what happens, man will be constantly striving to prepare a robe of righteousness to cover his deformity and sin. We'll be working so hard, so hard to be good, trying to fix the problem when Christ wants, when when Christ wants Him to come to Him just as He is. How many times have you been afraid to go to Christ sinful? How many times in the system with which we are raised, we were told that you have to give up your smoking, you have to give up your sabbath job, you have to give up this, you have to do that, you can't, Christ can't tolerate sin, it offends Him, God can't tolerate, you have to, you have to change before you can go to, how many, when Christ wants us to come just as we are and believe in Him as as His personal Savior, it is His tender love, a forgiving, it is excuse me, in His tender love, a forgiving Father brings forth His best robe in which to array His returning children. So intercession, I'm going to go back and and I've got some bullet points from this, this paragraph here. What do we learn? Number one from this Can we heal and fix our own condition? We can't fix our own condition. We're dying, we're terminal, we can't fix it. We have a defective heart dominated by fear and selfishness. When we go to Christ, who has procured a remedy, our prayers, our requests for help. It's like going to the ER after bitten by a rattlesnake, you go into the ER and you say to the ER doc, save me. You're pleading. You're importuning. The ER doctor. You're presenting your pleas. Save me. I've been bitten by a snake. Save me. And the ER doctor says, I forgive you. Is that what you want? No, you want healing. You want regeneration. You want transformation. You want cleansing. You want something actually done in you. And thus, we read up here that he makes intercession for the saints. According to the will of God, he regenerates the sinner. The intercession of Christ is inside the heart and mind of the sinner. So Jesus, according to God's will, and it's according to God's will, uh, is working inside of us to free us from our fear and our selfishness. Do you notice he's not working in heaven to make legal payments? He's not working in heaven to remove wrath from the Father. He's not working in heaven to influence God. But Satan's enraged when this happens and he seeks to obstruct the healing that Christ wants to do in you by intercepting the truth of what Christ wants to do in you and replacing it with all kinds of distortions that eclipse the reality of God's goodness with a construct that God is wrathful and angry and he's going to punish you if he gets a good look at you. So, when that happens, then man puts all types of behavioral performances and its conditions upon what might happen. And so when people, when we have evangelistic crusades and we invite people to come to Christ, they can't be baptized until they give up their smoking and change their job and do all the... Wait, wait, we, they can't come as they are, can they? No, why? Because we've accepted this distortion and we don't let the Holy Spirit regenerate people. We, we obstruct we eclipse the good news about God that would regenerate hearts with this imperial list of rules that burden people in a legal system. So in truth, Christ wants to come in and actually cleanse, heal, and restore us. And when Christ heals us, the metaphor for that is putting on the robe of righteousness. That's, it's metaphor, putting on the robe. The reality is actual transformation. Monday's lesson, Hebrews 10.22, it asks us to read Hebrews 10.22, and it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. what What is being cleansed? According to the Hebrews passage, what's actually being cleansed? Our hearts and consciences. Notice that. The traditional view of this high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary that is applying his blood is doing something to gain us access in the heavenly throne room, and he's doing something in record books up there, and and they're doing some type of mystical, almost magical stuff going on. There's little smoke-filled rooms up there this is going on in. In reality, what makes us be able to access the throne room is by having our consciences cleansed. But we're not afraid of him anymore. And we are like him in heart. We love him. We cherish his motives. We practice his methods. The law of the new covenant, I will write my law where? The On the hearts and minds. Thus we are brought back into at-one-ment or unity with God. We live like he lives. Not because of our own goodness, but because of our, own, our trust in the one who's good. <clears throat> Under number three in the lesson it states, in the number three bullet here, It's it's the cleansing in the true tabernacle in heaven, however, is a cleansing of the conscience brought about by the blood of Christ. The justification of the repentant sinner is symbolized by this cleansing. We can have a clear conscience because we have been forgiven. Any thoughts about this? And and take a moment and, and contemplate what was just read here. I'm going to read it again. Contemplate. Think about this. The cleansing of the true tabernacle in heaven, however, is a cleansing of our conscience brought about by the blood of Christ. The justification of the repentant sinner is symbolized by this cleansing. We can have a clear conscience because we have been forgiven. Any questions or concerns?
2: How about the heart? See,
0: the way I view this, this is a sad mixture of true and false, of God's law. They've mixed in this three sentences. God's law with man's law. A design protocol construct with imposed rules construct are mixed here and merged. And that's why, if you're thinking, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, let's, let's go through it. The first part is absolutely right. The, the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven is a cleansing of the conscience, the hearts, the minds, of, of the building blocks, the living stones that make up that tabernacle. So that part is the right part. That part is, the, is God's design protocol. But, but notice what they do. They use symbolic language of the blood of Christ which is what?
1: The life and character of Christ.
0: The life and character of Christ. The truth that he revealed and the character he perfected. That unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, God, Jesus said in John 6, you have no part with Unless we internalize Christ's likeness, which the life is in the blood, his life, we become partakers of the divine nature. Unless we partake of that nature and internalize the metaphorical blood, the literal life of Christ, that we become like him, then we have no part. Um, the lesson, though, suggests that our conscience is cleansed by being forgiven. Did you notice that? Did anybody notice that? Yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Our conscience. Did Jesus forgive those who put him on the cross? Yes. Yeah. Did they have a cleansed conscience? Yes. Well, okay, then we've got a problem here. If consciences are cleansed by being forgiven, then they should have a cleansed conscience because they were forgiven. This, this is the this is the mixture of the penal view. See, in their in their mindset, the, the problem is an to rules, and the ruling authority has to police those breaches and list and and, and ex- exact punishments. And in order to have a cleansed conscience and not be under condemnation, the condemnation is external from the ruling authority put upon us. Once the external authority is no longer mad or wrathful, they forgiven, then we are under the, out from under the threat, and we can have peace. Mm-hmm. In reality, Adam sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. it was his own conscience. God said to Adam, hey, Adam, who said you're naked? Who told you that? Uh, you didn't hear me say it. I wasn't the one who told you you're naked. I didn't condemn you. As he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. It's not coming from me, Adam. That's your own conscience. See, this conviction of inadequacy, this shame, this guilt, it's internal. It's not coming from God condemning us. It's coming from our own condition being deviant from God's design. When we deviate from the design, it is painful. It's damaging to us in our own souls, in our own characters. And as I do lectures on guilt around the country, I tell people this conviction of of guilt that we get when we actually do wrong is like pain when you touch a hot stove. When you touch a hot stove, that pain is to alert you something is wrong. So you'll pull your hand back and not be damaged. This conviction of sin is to alert you. Something is wrong. And this conviction of guilt we get because of sin, it occurs when we are deviant from God's design, if it's appropriate guilt. There is inappropriate guilt that happens, but we're not going to talk about that right now. So
3: the cleansing as I see it, though, is the cleansing that comes from having the lies that Satan is trying to get it, convince us that, uh, God, about God's character, when those lies are finally dispelled. And you have the clarity of thought of the realization of God's character. That's the cleansing. You then let go of, oh, that's what it's about. And if you choose to let go of your own selfishness in your heart, you let God's God's love wash in.
0: Do you realize you just talked about two things that require for cleansing? You just named both of them. There are two things. You named both of them.
3: Realization and a change of heart.
0: There you go. One, we do need to have our minds cleansed of the lies, which wins us to trust. But that is not alone enough to have us have a clear conscience. What is it that causes our our, our conscience to be defective or us to be contaminated? It is our own selfishness and, and uh, and if you want to call it sinfulness, but our carnal nature. And we need a cleansing from that. That's what you talked about, the second thing you named. And when that happens, we actually have a change of heart on the inside. We're, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives me. I'm a new me and the old is gone, the new has come. I don't have those motives. Those are I'm dead to that old way. That's why we can have peace and the conscience is cleansed because we are actually transformed to live in harmony, which comes from recognizing the truth and being one with trust. So both have to happen. That's well said. Yeah. Um, so the cleansing of the conscience is also known as being reborn, renewed, transformed, dying to self, rising in a new life in Christ, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, and it is symbolized by the blood symbolized by the blood of the flesh, which is partaking of Christ. It is having the thoughts and motives and attitudes of the heart brought into harmony with God. The lesson, though, says that justification of the sinner, Now, notice this, this is very important to recognize, this is a subtle little distortion that creep into our thinking, that obscure, that eclipse the truth about God. The lesson says that justification of the sinner is symbolized by the cleansing of the conscience. Did you notice what they did? They've reversed it 180 degrees, which they always do. This is what happened when I met with the theologians on the hill. They took symbols and claimed that symbols were reality and took reality and claimed reality was symbolic. So notice here in the lesson it says that justification of the sinner is symbolized by the cleansing of the conscience. no. The cleansing of the conscience is what is being set right justification setting right that which is wrong our minds our hearts are actually transformed we are set right that's reality Yes or no Yes Yes, yes. The cleansing of the conscience of the heart is not a symbol it's not symbolic of justification it is justification Now a lot of them have a problem with this When they mix these two they think that justification is some type of a legal thing. When we're in heaven, you have legal pardons, or God declares one, and this is what I was told by the theologians on the hill. You know what they told me justification is? And this is a quote. When God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> think it through, guys. Think about it. Yeah, so I, I'm justified when God declares me to be righteous even though I'm not. I said, so God's lying. <laughs> well, they got real. No, 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 he's not lying. He's declaring you righteous because he's declaring you on the merits of Jesus, which stand in your record. And so when God opens your record book, he doesn't see the list of your sin or the condition of your true character, which is wicked. What he sees instead is Jesus' character applied in your account. And so he declares you righteous based on the legal achievements of Jesus in your behalf, even though you are still unrighteous in heart. We call this a fraud, a deception, duplicity, falsehood. A scam. And that's what they're teaching. Is there any wonder the Lord hasn't come and the people are no longer ready? God is wanting a people that actually experience real justification, where their hearts, their minds, their consciences are set right, cleansed, transformed, renewed, where they love God and love others more than self. And thus, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it describes that people, like Enoch and Elijah... Do you think Enoch and Elijah went to heaven with characters, unrighteous? No, so in Revelation twelve eleven, the translation group, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The implication, they don't love self so much, they're protecting self. They're not survival of the fittest driven. They're not fearful of death. They're not seeking it, they're not suicidal. But they're not interested in self-preservation as the primary drive to their existence. Tim? Yes.
3: What about sanctification, man? What's
0: the distinction? Uh, sanctification is the growing process. See, justification is when our, what's our natural state of our heart according to Romans? Unified with God or enmity with God? Natural state. We're against God now. We do not trust him. We're, we're distrustful of God in our carnal nature. And it says as soon as Abraham trusted God, Romans chapter 4, he was recognized as righteous. And so if you have a heart that distrusts and that heart now trusts God, is that a change of heart? That comes first. The heart changes first. And then once the heart trusts God, the heart is recognized as being right again. It's set right with me. My heart, the heart, that person's heart is no longer at enmity with me or against me or distrustful of me. That heart trusts me. We're set right. That's justification. And then sanctification is in that trust relationship. As we open our hearts to him, he comes in and sups with us. There's a transforming, regenerating, cleansing, healing process that happens. That's sanctification. Yes.
3: But then the person that accepts Jesus and continues to smoke, if his heart is set right with God, then it seems like he would immediately stop smoking. So, um... you know, when we baptize someone, we're declaring that they're justified, but it's okay. Why,
0: why would you think that a person whose heart's right with God would immediately stop smoking?
3: Because they have aligned themselves with God's plan.
0: Hmm. And so, when we align ourselves with God's plan, all neural circuits are immediately reset into perfection.
3: The ones you're conscious of.
0: Oh, the, the one, so, all neural circuits are immediately reset. When a child is born, they immediately have full development of all their abilities. See, we're reborn into Jesus Christ. That's justification at the rebirth process. We're set right with him at heart. And now there's the growing up process. And this is the point where Paul says in Romans 14, along these types of ideas about how you live your lifestyle, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Is smoking wrong and sinful for every human being? Or just some human beings? Everybody? Really? Did you know that that there's good data that shows that with schizophrenics that uh, when you smoke cigarettes, cigarettes give you nicotine. Nicotine hits uh, acetylcholine, nicotinic receptors that enhance cognition and allow the decrease of confused thoughts and actually think more clearly so they could have a better communion with God and have better understanding of his plan and will and less delusions and less confusion and less psychosis if they smoke than if they don't. It's not good for the lungs, but guess what? So if they, if they, so here we, so it's not good for the lungs. It's not good for the heart. So they smoke and they die 15 years younger, having had a journey with the Lord and walking in His knowledge and coming to His understanding. But they live 15 years longer without smoking, psychotic, delusional, not ever knowing Him. Which is the better plan? This is why we judge not that ye be not judged. You see, we want level four obedience. We talked about a few weeks ago. We want a list of rules, do's and don'ts. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, you guys should be on spiritual meat, but you're still on spiritual milk. Those on spiritual milk are not acquainted with righteousness. Get your mind around what he's saying. They're not righteous. They're unrighteous. If you're not righteous, you're not acquainted, you're unrighteous. And then it goes on to say, they focus on acts that lead to death.
3: Let's see,
0: Focus on acts, behaviors, the do's and the don'ts. And we're level four, do's and don'ts, list of rules, don't do this, don't do that, you're unrighteous.
1: Amen.
0: The righteous. And that's why it says to Timothy in another place, he says, the law was not given for the righteous. It was given for the wicked. Those who are murderers, slave traders, and, and liars, and frauds, and gossips, and all these other things that they do, the law was given for them, but not for the righteous. Why? for the same reason that MRIs were not made for healthy people, they're made for sick people. If you're healthy, you don't need an MRI. The MRI examines the, the insides where you can't see to find what's wrong. If there's nothing wrong, you don't need it. Same thing for the law. The written law was given to diagnose and expose the defects of the heart and character. Somebody was going to say something?
1: The text just sends chills down my spine as It seems to condemn our traditional thought and <coughs> way of processing and deciding who's right and who's wrong. Is The text that says... Be weary of those who judge you by the sabbaths you keep and the foods you eat. I mean, if that doesn't make you think, my goodness, isn't that what we always do?
0: You know, Condemn
1: people for eating it, a pork chop. And,
0: and let's be clear here: we're not suggesting that there aren't some truths that are self-evidently self-evident healthier than others. It is clearly generally, no, so we're generally healthier. And and exclusively probably healthier for your lungs not to smoke than to smoke. But there may be circumstances and situations where the totality of the person's well-being might be that it's not really sinful for that person to be smoking. Because not doing it with a selfish and rebellious heart, a person could potentially be smoking because it helps them know God better. In this world of sin with genetic defect. And who are we to judge that? We just should judge, it's not right for me to smoke. I can't say it's not right for you to smoke. I can tell you from my understanding, it's unhealthy, and generally I would advise against it, and I do. I advise all my patients to get off. And I prefer to treat my patients with schizophrenia with medicine rather than cigarettes. (laughs) And the
3: bottom line coming down to to that relationship element, as the individual has that personal relationship with God and that heart cleansing happens and that transformation happens, then God will be able to communicate with them about the unselfish best good for them.
0: thank, Thank you for bringing this up. This is another excellent point. Can any sinner, separate from Christ, achieve victory over sin? So why is it that we require them, before they're baptized in the church, to have victory over such sins as smoking and these other things? If they can't do it outside their relation with Christ, then baptism is when you die to self and you rise in that new relationship with Christ. Why do we do that? Yeah, yeah. So, so the reason I think we do it is is not love based; it's fear based. We do this list of rules, and you can't be baptized if you do these things because we are afraid for the church. We must protect the church from infiltration from the sinners of the world. And so we're afraid. We don't trust God. We don't trust the Holy Spirit. We don't love them and bring them into a community that will love them and nurture them into a healthier path with God. No, no, no. We must protect it from evil. In the church. And you can't do these things. And we put these barriers up and we eclipse, as we said earlier, we're eclipsing the Holy Spirit and the truth about God and people are not finding freedom they're being enslaved and I think this is what Christ meant when he said to the Pharisees you search the world over to find a convert when you do you make him twice the son of hell as he was you've added new barriers between him and the grace of God that would heal him yes
2: the character of the church but I would hate for my grandson who is not schizophrenic to see this individual who has been approved by the church through baptism and <laughs> know Uh, that he sees this person smoking, which may be an influence on him. And therefore, if this person who is smoking has the relationship with God, as we're assuming he does, then would the baptism be that significant to to this person? Would he have to be baptized?
0: So you're arguing for...
2: I'm arguing for not necessarily holding to the standards. For corporate approval to the schizophrenic who is smoking.
0: Well, we don't have to be schizophrenic. Why do they have to be schizophrenic to, to smoke and be baptized? How huh? about if it's just a smoker who's smoking and they want to be baptized? Can we baptize them before they quit smoking?
2: That um, I don't want my grandson to take up smoking because of the health aspect of it.
0: Sure, I wouldn't either. And
2: when he sees the church member who's smoking
0: that somehow makes it, makes it healthy? Well, no, if we see a church, so, so what are the primary arguments, what are your primary arguments of not wanting your grandchild to smoke? What are the primary arguments?
2: The health aspect. Mm-hmm.
0: And if we baptize somebody into the church that smokes, do those arguments get diminished in any form or fashion? In his mind, yes. Really? You think it's healthy now? Because it, the, the, if you're baptized in smoke, then it's not as harmful to you than if you're unbaptized in smoke.
2: That's where the schizophrenic comes in you know, and <laughs> you know.
0: all. See, This is the this is the kind of the thinking, I think, sometimes that confuse kids because we make things that don't make sense. A kid is smart enough to realize that whether you're baptized or not baptized, smoking is still damaging. If I put a gun to my head and shoot myself in the head... Uh, the bullet will do just as much damage if I'm baptized and if I'm not baptized. If I jump off a building baptized or not baptized, I get just as much damage. Smoking is still damaging either way. I don't, so if your primary concern is physical health, I don't see how that's an issue.
2: It's the immaturity of my grandson who is not particularly concerned about his health as many... Young
0: people. See, I, I think, I think, I think you're, you're maybe mixing unconsciously what our church has done. And what our church has done historically, it's had a system of rules, and it hasn't presented them as primarily health-related. It's presented them as morally right or wrong. And it's wrong, and it's sinful to smoke. And, and therefore, if somebody's in the church and smoking, then, then it must not be sinful anymore, therefore it must be permissible. And that's the confusion.
2: My would like to think.
0: No. But, it, but if you present it as the health-related issues, and the reason it's not good is because it deviates from God's design for health and it's damaging and destructive. And I think what was said earlier is when you bring a smoker into the church... And you baptize them in the Lord and love them. Isn't it the Holy Spirit's job to convict them of sin? And one of the things that really disturbs me, and Ellen White brings this out in the book Steps to Christ, where she says that, that the, um, with, 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 uh, no sin is inconsequential, but with God there, there are, um, um, levels of seriousness of sin. Not all sin is equal in His eyes. This, the grosser sins of, of, uh, of drunkenness and, and sexual promiscuity are pointed out by members of the church. We might say smoking as well, as, as drug addiction, as being the, the grosser sins and the worst sins. But these are not the worst sins in God's eyes. The worst sins in God's eyes are pride and arrogance and selfishness. Um, these are the worst sins. Now when we baptize people into the church, do we demand that they give up pride and selfishness and gossip and these other things which are much worse? No, we focus on smoking. But the smoker can't come in, but the person who's proud and arrogant and gossiping, they can come in, no worries. Mm -hmm. This is why people leave the church, because we're hypocrites. Mm We had a standard that makes no sense whatsoever that keeps certain people out with certain behaviors and won't let them come to Christ unless they change and conform their own character first. By others, we never require change even in or out of the church. It's all good. You can actually be our pastor and our leader because, with your arrogance and pride and gossip. <laughs> and they're the worst ones. This is, this is classic level four thinking. We have a list of rules. No jewelry in the church. If you wear jewelry, you're you're a sinner. But it's okay to have a $5,000 dress. A $20,000 watch. That's good. It tells time. No worries. But $15 stud earrings, that's sin. It's irrational. It's nonsense. And this is what a level level six person on the principles of good stewardship and modesty would say, I'm not going to invest my money in self-aggrandizement. So I'm not gonna spend $20,000 on a watch. I'm also not gonna to spend tons of money on jewelry. And I'm not gonna go and get, uh, you know, tons and tons of, of, you know, makeup and stuff. But you know what? Cosmetics is, is not the problem. If you really understand, in, in, that, in Genesis, there was chaos. And in the Greek, God took chaos and, and made cosmos. Which we get cosmetic from cosmos.
3: <laughs>
0: which means he put, he brought disorder into order. <laughs> And so when you get up in the morning, you look in the bathroom, you see disorder, and you pull out your comb and your brush and your other cosmetic devices, and you're bringing order to the chaos. Thank you for doing that. Amen. Okay? The, the real question, the real question on cosmetics is, when you're done, have you brought order or have you added to the chaos? There are some people, we remember some famous televangelists, I won't mention any names, Tammy, who added to the chaos. Remember? That's the problem. But we have a rule. No, no, cosmetics are sinful. And so what happens then is we we instead, we go the direction of making ourselves so plain. I remember when I was in college over here at the university all those years ago, there was one girl, I don't know if you remember this, Lori, but there was one girl on campus who dressed like she was in the 19th century. Hair straight, I'm not even sure she washed it. Okay? because you know, I mean, it was just straight, nothing done to it, no makeup, a plain, plain dress, and she went around. <laughs> I don't think she smiled once in four years. Because she was promoting her piousness, and, and she was making a statement against all those sinful women with their cosmetics. And what was she doing? Drawing attention to? Self. 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 Okay? You see, this is the real problem, and we miss it with our list of rules. But when we live principled living, we don't want to draw attention to self. We want self to turn all the attention to our creator and our redeemer and our sustainer. That's where we want the attention to go. It's a huge, huge difference. So guys, um, maybe I should jump to Friday and close with with what's in Friday's lesson. And and I'm not going to get to all of it, but... um, in, in Friday's lesson, there's a quote up here at the top. It's a quite primitive quote. Um, and it talks about the mediatorial work of the office. Of the medita- me, uh, we can have access to God through the med- mediation of another, um, and so forth and so on. His, and it talks about, and I ask this question, what are the demands, talks about the demands of the divine law, meaning the demands of the divine law. It says, making an offering equal to the, de- it says Christ alone could open the way by making an offering equal to the demands of the divine law. What's that sound like? That payment, right? Okay, go. I, I've got. I got probably twenty quotes in the lesson notes. Go get them. If you remember one from a couple, we've we've used it three or four times in the last six weeks. Desire of ages. The law requires righteousness, a righteous character. This man, as man, has not to give. Um, but Christ came in the form of a man, developed a perfect character. He offers as a free gift to all who accept it. That's in here. But then, then some of these. Uh, second, sec, second selected messages to eleven. The law of God, as presented in Scripture, is broad in its requirements. Every principle is holy, just, and good. The law lays men under the obligation of God, but the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standards of love and righteousness. What's the law requiring? Healing and holy. Just like the law of respiration requires breathing, God's law requires love. Here's another one. The divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. That's what it requires. That which God required of Adam before his fall was perfect obedience to his law. God requires uh, now what he required of Adam. Perfect obedience. Righteousness without flaw, without shortcoming in his sight. God help us to render him all his law requires, which is what? Perfect love. Thus Christ offered what the law required. He offered what? He goes to heaven with a perfected humanity. He offers healing, restoration, regeneration. He offers us the solution to our selfishness that deviates from God's design. I've got a bunch of quotes. They all offer the same thing. Never once is it he offered a payment to appease. It's not in here. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your goodness. Lord, you can see how, how much we've been affected by some of the things we've been taught in our upbringing. Lord, we want to come back to the truth of your kingdom, your character of love. Help us partake of what you have achieved for us. Write your love upon our hearts and minds. May we be brought back to live principle-based living, doing what's right because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to you, that our lives can glorify you on this earth. Give us effectiveness as a class, as a ministry, that we can actually spread this word about you throughout uh, the churches, that that others can see this and, and that the world can be lighted and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.